Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. We're going to be in Jeremiah 32, so if you'll find that in your copy of Scriptures, we're going to read this chapter as we work through this sermon today. I can remember when we moved a few years back, we uh, worked to get our house on the market and sold our house and bought a house up here. And uh, recently, I've discovered that it is a really, really difficult housing market here in Wilkes County. And that's not because it's, uh, it's hard to sell a house. You could probably sell your house pretty quickly. It's because it's hard to find a house that you could buy that you would want to move into. The housing market is kind of fl- uh, not flooded with uh, houses, but flooded with buyers. So uh, I guess it would be a really good time to sell your house if you were ready to do that. The only problem with selling your house in a market where you could sell it quickly is could you have a place to move into if you didn't have a house to, to buy? I don't know whether it's a good time to sell a house or whether it's a good time to buy a house. Because I guess if you get a good deal on your house, you're probably going to have to pay a good deal on somebody else's house too. Um, I'm not entirely sure. I I, I do know that this message is a good message for me. Uh, There are lots of times that I will preach a passage of Scripture and work through it and know that God is using it in someone's life. But for me, this passage of Scripture has really spoken to me this past week in the study and preparation of it reason we're talking about houses and, and buying and selling is because the story of Jeremiah 32 is the story of Jeremiah buying a piece of property. As I've mentioned before, working through the book of Jeremiah, uh, one of the reasons we can pick and choose a little bit which sections we're going to deal with is because the book of Jeremiah is only loosely put together in chronological order. Right now, in chapter 32, we're in the very last months of Jeremiah's time in Jerusalem. He's there under Zedekiah, the last king. Nebuchadnezzar is actually at the doorstep with his army. They're besieging Jerusalem. But there are other sections after this in the text, in the book of Jeremiah, that go backwards and deal with times when Jeremiah was uh, ministering under King Jehoiakim or a different king. And so there's a back and forth. It's put together, the book is put together thematically rather than chronologically. And so we're going to do a little bit of back and forth the next couple of weeks as we finish up our study in Jeremiah. As I mentioned before, we're not going to go through every chapter. We're not going to go through every verse. But this one has been uh, immensely encouraging to me. It's about faith in real life. The aim of what Jeremiah is teaching us or what God is teaching us through the prophet here is how do we put faith and practice in real life, everyday experiences. So read with me, if you will, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, imprisoned him, saying... Why do you prophesy and say, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, he shall capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face and see him eye to eye. He shall take Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall remain until I visit him, declares the Lord. Though you fight against the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me, Old Hanamel, 
The son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. And then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord and said to me, Buy my field that is at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. And I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver, I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. And I took the sealed deed of purchase, containing the terms and conditions and the open copy. And I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, son of Mashiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. I charged Baruch in their presence, saying... Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Now we'll pick up and we'll read the rest of the chapter in a moment, but we're going to unpack four ways that we can show faith in real life, everyday circumstances. The first way that Jeremiah models for us showing faith in these types of circumstances is we show faith by keeping God's word even when it is not popular. If you'll notice, Jeremiah found himself in chapter 32 in the court of the guard. He was in prison. He was put in jail. Put in jail because for 40 years, I mean, Jeremiah's not a young man at this time. He's, he's at least late middle ages, maybe into his senior citizen years by this stage of his life. He's nearing the end of his ministry. He had been preaching for 40 years. And if you go back and think about some of the things that he had been saying, what he had said about Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar overtaking Jerusalem and warning against Zedekiah was nothing new. This is what Jeremiah had been talking about for his entire 40-year ministry. But of course, Zedekiah found his words troubling at best, treasonous at worst. I mean, Jeremiah's standing up in front of everybody that will listen and saying, yeah, right outside, there's Nebuchadnezzar and his army, and, and they're here because for years and years and years, you did not obey God, you worshiped idols, you failed to trust him. Zedekiah's had opportunities to repent, he's had opportunities to even surrender, Zedekiah hasn't done any of those things, and guess what's going to happen? You're going to lose this fight. I mean, you've got to think about this picture in your mind. There's, there are armies outside the city gates of Jerusalem. The people of Jerusalem have been under siege for a significant period of time. The entire siege, I believe, according to one commentator, lasted two years or longer. And so during that period of time, Jeremiah is saying, hey guys, we're going to lose the fight. This is it. This is, this is your last hurrah. This is the last chance you're going to have to do anything right before the Lord because you're going to lose. And so Zedekiah had Jeremiah imprisoned. Had him put in the court of the guard and told him exactly why he had him imprisoned. You know what I find fascinating about that? Jeremiah was just simply doing what Jeremiah had been doing for 40 years. And his ministry did not bear fruit at the end of the 40 years. It wasn't as if... He had a great grand audience. It wasn't as if his church was the church that everybody wanted to go to. 
uh, because I'm not entirely sure anybody wants to go to the church of a pastor who's in prison in the court because he's saying treasonous things against the king and against the nation and against the people that he's trying to minister to and pastor and lead and prophesy against. Here's the word. We show faith by keeping God's word even when it's not popular. I love that Jeremiah was faithful even when it meant he was going to be in shackles. Jeremiah was not afraid of the consequences that took place for him obeying God. He wasn't afraid of that. I'm going to tell you something, folks. I I have no idea what's going to happen in our country in the next five years or 10 years or or 25 years. I do know that we are living in an increasing post-Christian age, an era in our country's history and in our world's history where the values and the expectations that are defined in Scripture are not the values and expectations that culture has adopted and wants to adopt. adopt. I will say this, I, I, I fully expect during my lifetime and during my ministry to at the least be severely marginalized for preaching what the Bible says is sin or what the Bible says is true or what the Bible says is right. We're already seeing that in, in certain arenas of uh, American society. Uh, But what we may have to do one day is stand up for God's Word, even if it means we're marginalized, isolated, possibly persecuted, maybe even jailed. I just want to tell you some good news there. If that would be us within our lifetime, we're in pretty good company. Jeremiah was in prison for preaching the Word. Other prophets were imprisoned and martyred for preaching the word. Paul was imprisoned for preaching the word. Peter was crucified upside down for preaching the word. Our Chinese brothers and sisters across the globe, they consider their seminary training to be their time in prison, memorizing scripture. Listen, if this does come our way, we're going to be in really good company. And God's in control no matter what's going on. And the text evidences that. But we show our faith by keeping God's word, even if it's not popular. And and regardless of the extent of whatever we may face, persecution, marginalization, I will say this, there is no doubt that if you and I hold to the values of God's word, live by the values of God's word, and declare what it means for lost people to come to faith in a relationship with Jesus Christ, that is not going to be popular. That's never been popular. It's not popular today. It won't be popular tomorrow. But we exhibit faith when we're willing to live by a standard, by God's truth and God's word, even if it's not popular. I'll give you a second way we show faith. We show faith by obeying God, even when his commands don't make sense. Now, this is, uh, this is one of those instances in the book of Jeremiah where God used Jeremiah as a living illustration. On a number of occasions, God told Jeremiah to do something, and the something that he did would would form the foundation for a sermon that he would preach. He took a loincloth and he walked to Babylon with it and buried it under a rock and he walked back and then he walked back to get it and he he showed that loincloth that was spoiled. We didn't deal with that subject, but we did deal with the subject where Jeremiah took a jar and, and he broke a jar using it as an illustration where he went to the potter's house as an illustration. There are other instances in Jeremiah's ministry. This is one of those. As he was in prison, in the court of the guard, 
God spoke to Jeremiah. By the way, that's a reminder that no matter where we are, God can get to us where we are. You should remember that. There's a reason we can have faith and we can trust in God. It's because the, the prison that Jeremiah was in didn't limit him from hearing from God. Didn't limit him from obeying God. It may have been a limitation on his luxury and his experiences, but it did not inhibit his walk with God. God spoke to Jeremiah and said, hey, uh, listen, that, that, uh, that cousin, was it a cousin? Let me get that right. Um, you're the Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle. Yeah, your cousin. He's going to come to you, and he is going to offer you uh, a, a land deal. He's going to offer you a land deal. And he's going to come, and I want you to buy the land that, that he's going to give you, that he's going to offer you. Now, this is really, really strange for a whole host of reasons. One reason it's strange is because Jeremiah's in prison. I mean, you know, buying and selling property is generally for free people. Jeremiah's in prison, and God says to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, uh, cousin's going to show up, and he's going to offer you a land deal. Now, another reason it's really strange is because at that very moment in human history, outside the walls of Jerusalem, Anathoth was outside the walls of Jerusalem. It was a couple of miles away. Outside the walls of Jerusalem, Babylon's armies were besieging the city. And while maybe the city thought they were going to be okay, and maybe eke out a victory, and maybe find a way to survive, and maybe push away a king who was feckless and weak, maybe they thought they were going to be okay, Jeremiah knew they weren't going to be okay. Jeremiah knew they were going to lose. Jeremiah knew that the land value was going to go way down because land values in war-torn places are not very high. Not only that, land values in places where there are no people are not very high. Land values in places where there are no animals and there are no crops are not very high. And so this is really strange that God would say to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, not only is there an army out there and and you're preaching and you're being faithful and thank you for doing that. Uh, God didn't say thank you, but I'm just just kind of imagining in my mind this conversation going on. Uh, But Jeremiah, your cousin's going to show up and he's going to offer you a land deal and I want you to buy the property. And you got to wonder what in the world is going on in Jeremiah's mind. I mean, hold on. You've told me to do some strange things, Lord, but... Buy a piece of property when the Babylonians are about to take it on top of that. The last time you discover Anathoth in the book of Jeremiah is in Jeremiah 12 or Jeremiah 11 and 12 when God warned Jeremiah that his family, which is Jeremiah was from Anathoth, was out to kill him because he had been preaching things that made him unpopular. So one commentator described it like this, described Hanamel as uh, that cousin that you never see at a family reunion unless he's got this killer deal that you've got to buy into. He's the one that'll come up to you and pat you on the shoulder and say, hey, listen, and it's been a while since we've talked, but, but, but I've got this fantastic deal. And if you will give a down payment, I can guarantee a $5,000 investment on a $100 purchase. And, and, and you know what you're going to do with that, Right. You're going to roll your eyes and do your best to get out of the conversation. One commentator described Hanamel as that person. In reality, the, the right of purchase for a deed was intended because God did not want the property 
to be shifted outside of families. He gave the land to the people of Israel, and he wanted that property to remain in the family. And so regardless of the situation, Jeremiah was next in line to buy the property. Now, maybe Hanamel was trying to pull a fast one over on his gullible prophetic uncle. I don't know. But God said, here's what's going to happen, and you're going to, I want you to buy the property. And so Hanamel showed up, and Jeremiah knew, well, God must have been right because he told me this was going to happen, and Hanamel indeed showed up and told him about the property. And Jeremiah weighed out 17 ounces of silver, which wasn't a whole lot of money, uh, it, it, for land. We don't know whether it was a good deal or a bad deal, though, because we don't know how much land it was. Jeremiah waited out, and he got signatures, and he got it affirmed, and he told Baruch, his uh, secretary, we're going to talk about him in a week or two, told Baruch to take that deed and put it in a jar and seal the top of the jar. By the way, that's really an interesting uh, insight from the book of Jeremiah, because if you research the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in that same region, they were found in clay jars, very similar to the very description that Jeremiah would have used here. And by the way, they've lasted for 2,000 years or so as a result of the way that they were, uh, that the, the way that they were uh, set aside and the way that they were prepared. So Jeremiah had it set aside and had it prepared. And, and, and we've got to think, you know, what was Jeremiah thinking? What was God's point there? Uh, here's the deal. We show our faith when we obey God even when the situation doesn't make sense. Folks, there are sometimes God asks us to do things. God gives us insights and direction and instruction. And I'm just going to be honest with you. In the course of human wisdom and in the way the world works, what God's asking us to do appears foolish. And I'm not talking about uh, the nights that, 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 that you wake up with this kind of hey, I've got to do something about this, and you realize it was the Mexican that you ate the night before, and it's keeping you up. I'm not talking about these, I'm not talking about little things. I'm not, I'm not talking about those, I mean, when God makes it abundantly clear, this is what you're supposed to do, and he affirms it not only through his word, but he affirms it through uh, someone else, and he affirms it through the situation you're in, and you look at all the stuff that's around, and you say, hold on a second, God's leading me to do this, but this is all that's going on, it doesn't make sense. I've only had one or two of those instances in my life where I know God led me to do something that really didn't make a whole lot of sense. Sometimes I've obeyed and sometimes I didn't obey as quickly as I wished I would have. But we show our faith when we obey God even when the situation doesn't make sense. And that's what Jeremiah did. He obeyed God when it didn't make sense. Let me tell you some things that don't make sense. It doesn't make sense. For there to be a pandemic in the world and you to still be at church. I, I know that some people aren't comfortable coming back yet. I'm okay with that. I'm not here to criticize you and critique you. This isn't meant to challenge you. But it doesn't make sense. Why, why would we not go? Why would we, why would we endanger ourselves to worship Jesus? I'm not, not 100% sure we are. We're doing everything we can to be safe. But my point is, sometimes it takes faith to express a desire to worship God with his people. Let me tell you something else that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to me that Wilkesboro Baptist Church is in a financially solvent situation in the middle of 20, the end of 2020 going into budget discussion. You'd have told me we would be where we are financially, really typically where we are any other year. I, I, I don't know that I would have believed it. Do you know why? Because some of you have made a commitment to tithe and to give and to give above a tithe 
No matter what's going on in the world and no matter what's going on at your church or what's not going on at your church. I'm going to tell you, in some senses, well, really in a world sense, that doesn't make sense. But you know why you're doing that? You know why you're being faithful? Because you're obeying God even when the situation around you doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense for you to volunteer to serve in children's ministry. There are a lot of things I could do as a pastor, a lot of things I love to do as a pastor. There's not a chance, not a chance, that I would be good in a children's Sunday school class or in a preschool classroom. You say that, I mean, I've talked about it with our staff. That's not the way God gifted me. I, I wouldn't have any hair at the end of a three-hour period with preschoolers. It would be bananas. You know, it doesn't make sense for, for some of you to say, I'm going to commit my time to serve children and preschoolers and minister. It doesn't make sense outside of the body of Christ. But you know, when God leads you to do it, it makes perfect sense because you're putting, you're expressing faith in God. It doesn't make sense to go to another part of the world and tell people about Jesus. It didn't make sense for our, our youth ministry to take time last year to go to Puerto Rico. Not Puerto Rico. Um, El Salvador. Puerto Rico was a few years back, I'm sorry. El Salvador. It didn't make sense. But we went because God sent us there. Here's the point. It takes faith to obey God, even when what God is asking you to do might not make sense. Let me give you a third one. We show faith when we praise God for what we know, and we pray to God regarding what we don't know. I love Jeremiah's response to the Lord. Jeremiah's response was, I'm going to do what you say. He weighed out the silver. He bought the land from his cousin Hanamel, and then he prayed. Pick up with me in verse 16. After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord saying, and this is where we get our memory verse, Ah, Lord God, and that's a groan. That's just kind of a, ugh. God, here's where I am. Here's what we're going on. Oh, Lord God, he, it's just kind of a, an acknowledgement, a, a humble acknowledgement. Lord God, it is you who has made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of our of fathers to their children after them. Oh, great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. You have shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt and to this day in Israel and among all mankind, and you have made a name for yourself as at this day is reflecting back on the Exodus, how God brought people of Israel out of slavery there. Verse 21, you have, excuse me, you brought your people out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and outstretched arm and with great terror. You gave them this land, which you swore to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they entered and took possession of it, but they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They did nothing of all you commanded them to do. Therefore, you've made all this disaster come upon them. Behold, the siege mounds have come up to the city to take it. And because of sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans who are fighting against it. What you spoke has come to pass. And behold, you see it. Yet you, O Lord God, have said to me, buy the field for money and get witnesses 
though the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. Now, Jeremiah did something that gives us a really important insight. He obeyed and then he prayed. Now, I'm not saying that's always the pattern that has to be in our lives. I think prayer is an important discerning tool for how we know what God's leading us to do or not leading us to do. But I want you to know this. Jeremiah prayed out of obedience, not to try to get away from obedience. He wasn't trying to talk God out of God's plan. He was trying to talk to God and seek understanding about what God was asking him to do. You get that distinction, right? But notice how he showed his faith. He, we show faith when we praise God for what we know and pray to God regarding the things we don't know. Did you catch how much of that prayer was a request? Did you catch how much of that prayer was a supplication? Not much. The majority of that prayer is Jeremiah telling God what he already knew about God and what God already knew about himself. I want you to catch this. Before Jeremiah prayed, he praised. Before he whined, he worshiped. Before he complained, he confessed. Jeremiah didn't start with his lack of understanding. He started with what he knew very clearly about who God was. And I love how he started this would really help our prayer lives. We, we did a series on prayer back in the summer. And uh, if you'd like to, you can go back and watch some of those services and some of those sermons on prayer. But, but this passage of Scripture will really help our prayer lives. He started by saying, It is you, Lord, who made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard from you. And then he goes into this praise list. He lists several things, specific things that God had done, that God was doing, that God would do, and Jeremiah was affirming who God was. Why did Jeremiah do that, and why will that help our prayer lives? Because, folks, when we come to God, we don't come to God as if he's incapable of doing anything that we're about to ask him to do. Jeremiah came to God as if God was capable of doing anything that God pleased himself to accomplish and to do. We don't come to a God who can't, we, don't, we come to a God who can. We don't come to a God who doesn't know. We come to a God who knows everything. We don't come to a God who is, uh, who, who, who is unable to fix our situations. We come to a God who is able to do way more than fix our situations. And Jeremiah realized that. And he praised and he implored God for who he was. And he testified about God's greatness and about God's glory and then he said, uh, and, and God, I know all this about you. I know everything. I know, not everything, but I know these things about you. I even know that the reason I'm in prison, though he didn't say it specifically this way, the reason there's a siege outside the city is because I've been preaching what you've been telling me to preach for 40 years. And the people haven't listened to a word that I've said or a word the other prophets have said. And we're in this situation exactly because we haven't listened and you've done exactly what you've said. But why did you tell me to buy a piece of property? Because it doesn't make financial sense. Now, now, listen, this reminds us of something. This tells us something. It tells us that when we're confused or when we're unsure, we can go to God with anything. 
God is not a God who wants to ignore us. He doesn't want to sideline us. He doesn't want to push us away. He loves us. He, did, he sent his son Jesus so he can enter into a relationship with us, so we could talk to him and he could talk to us, so we could bring our situations before him. And he did not chide Jeremiah for asking for understanding. In part, I think, because Jeremiah didn't ask for understanding before he obeyed. He obeyed and then asked for understanding. He was willing to obey. I'm telling you, that there's a lesson there. We need to obey. We need to be willing to obey. And when we pray, we need to praise. We need to talk to God about what we know and worship Him and glorify Him and exalt Him. Uh, why in a worship service? Now, we could put a sermon first. And, and there, there's a good case in some places for putting a sermon first and letting the praise be the, the kind of cap on a worship service. That's a really dangerous thing to do at Wilkesboro Baptist Church because if I started the worship service, I might preach longer than I already do. I don't want to say dangerous. That's strong language. I, I might be difficult on our congregation. But why do we praise first? Why is that typical in a worship service? Do you know why? Because what we need more than we need anything else is to have our minds right about who God is. Acknowledge that He's great and that He's glorious. And if nothing else happens in a prayer time or nothing else happens in a worship service or nothing else happens in our lives, but we get called up in the fact that nothing is too wonderful for God. Nothing is too hard for God. God is creator and God is Lord and God is glorious and God is in control and God is sovereign. If that's all we get to in a worship service, if that's all we get to in a prayer, in a prayer time, that's enough. In fact, this is why this sermon's been so good for me in this season of my life because it reminds me that no matter what's going on in the chaos out there, if God is who He is and is consistent and faithful, that's really all I need to know for today and for tomorrow and for next week and for next year and however long that is. So we show faith when we praise God for what we know and pray to God regarding what we don't. Here's a fourth way we show our faith. We show faith when we accept God's sovereignty to judge and restore. Another way we could put that is when we accept, we show faith when we accept God's plan for the future. Notice God's response. We're going to read God's answer to Jeremiah's prayer. It's worth reading all of it, so we'll read the rest of chapter 32 as we unpack this final way that we can show faith. Verse 26, the word of the Lord came to, came to Jeremiah, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? And now I'm going to stop right there for just a moment. Remember, God loves to answer our questions with questions. And this is a rhetorical question. And it's a connecting question. It connects right back to verse 17. God is asking Jeremiah, Jeremiah, is anything too hard for me? And the obvious answer is no, nothing is too hard for me. And that is a good thing for us to hear from the Lord, that the Lord knows he's sovereign and in control. Anyway, verse 28. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hands of the Chaldeans, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. The Chaldeans who are fighting against this city shall come and set this city on fire, burn it, with the houses on whose roof, roofs offerings have been made to Baal, and drink offerings have been poured out to other gods to provoke me to anger. For the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. Children of Israel have done nothing but provoke me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. 
This city has aroused my anger and wrath from the day it was built to this day so that I will remove it from my sight because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah that they did to provoke me to anger. Their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they have turned to me their back and not their face. Though I have taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive instruction. They set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They built the places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech, though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Pick up in a moment and read the rest, but God's answer to Jeremiah starts off uh, pretty typical of the book of Jeremiah. Hey, Jeremiah, yep, I'm going to give, Bab- uh, give Jerusalem to Babylon. They're going to be destroyed because they have, get this, turned their back on me and not their face. How many of your parents whose children, when they are in their worst disrespectful mood, what do they do? They won't look at you. They turn their back and they stomp away. You want to tell them... That gets me more than anything, but don't you dare roll your eyes at my wife. Ooh, not a good thing. Well, that's what the people of Israel were doing to God. I mean, they, they set up idolatry in the temple. They, they completely rejected God's right to rule over them. It was terrible what they were doing. They were rebellious and evil, and God said, I'm going to destroy them because of it. Now, some scholars actually have, some Bible commentators rather, have looked at the rest of the chapter and said it couldn't, this, this couldn't have been in God's answer because if you pick up verse 36, notice this. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning this city of which you say, it is given in the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, famine, and pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger, my wrath, and my great indignation. I'll bring them back to this place and I'll make them dwell in safety. The turn is immediate. God says, yes, I'm going to destroy, but I'm going to restore. Yes, I'm going to judge, but I'm going to bring them back. Yes, I'm going to send them in exile, but I'm going to bring them back from exile and give them this land again. That, that is some, the reason some commentators think, hey, this can't be from God, is because there's a switch there. An immediate switch in context. God promises judgment, but then he promises restoration. Folks, that is so consistent with the God I know. God sent Jesus to die on a cross to be judged for our sins so that we could become the righteousness of God and receive forgiveness and come back from our exile and separation from God. This is not inconsistent with God. This is consistent with the God described in all of the Scripture. Yes, God will judge. He will not tolerate sin. That's why we as a nation ought to be warned and be wary of the fact that we can expect God's judgment. He will not tolerate our depravity, our murder, our perversity. He will judge it, but he will forgive. He will show grace. He will show mercy. He will receive back into salvation. He is kind and gracious. Verse 38, they shall be my people and I'll be their God. I'll give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. I'll put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I'll rejoice in doing them good. I'll plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this disaster upon the people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. Fields shall be bought in this land of which you are saying it is a desolation. 
without man and beast. It's given in the hand of the Chaldeans. Fields shall be bought for money. Deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin, in the places about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the hill country, the cities of the Shephelah, the cities of the Negev, for I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. The Lord says, I'm going to restore. And Jeremiah, the reason I want you to buy that field is because there's coming a day when the people of Israel are coming back and they're going to buy fields and they're going to sell fields again. And I'm going to do exactly what I have promised to do among my people. So we show our faith when we believe in God's plan for the future. Recently, I was uh, reading an audiobook or listening to an audiobook uh, as a biography about the life of Leonardo da Vinci, the Renaissance painter. Fascinating. Written by Walter Isaacson. I uh, learned a lot of things about Leonardo. Of course, you might know that he painted some of the most magnificent works of art that are still in existence in the world today. He painted The Last Supper. He painted the Mona Lisa, which is a beautiful work of art. Ever so often, a painting is discovered or rediscovered and thought to be a Leonardo da Vinci masterpiece, and it's examined and it's explored. Uh, A few years back, around the turn of the 21st century, late 1900s, an art historian found this copy of what is called Salvador Mundi. It's Latin for Savior of the World, And uh, Leonardo is known to have painted a picture of Jesus in Renaissance dress, holding a globe that's representative of the world and picturing him as Savior. That's the picture. But his history also records that many of his followers, many of the painters that followed him, uh, copied his masterpiece. And so there are suspected to be about 20 different copies of this painting that was thought to be lost Leonardo's painting that was thought to be lost. So this art historian found this copy in some place and paid $100 for it. Got to looking at it, restoring it, examining it, and thinking, that that may not be from one of Leonardo's followers. It may actually be from Leonardo. So he had it investigated. And there's an art critic, Martin Kemp, who's an expert on Leonardo's works. And after it was cleaned and after it was restored and after it was studied by art critics, they have made the case that because of the hatching, because Leonardo was left-handed, left-handed hatching, some of the curls, some of the way that the painting was done, they have affirmed it to be an original Leonardo painting. Guy who bought it for a hundred bucks sold it for a hundred and twenty million dollars. It most recently sold for more than $450 million. Now, just think about this for a second. How would you like to be the genius that spent $100 or bought a Leonardo for $100? I don't know what he spent to restore it. It it didn't matter (laughs) because he more than made up for it when he sold it, right? Right? How would you like to be that person? How would you like to be the one who invested $100 to get $120 million back? I'm going to tell you something. The picture of what God told Jeremiah to do in Jeremiah 32 gives us an image of something that is far greater than if we bought a Leonardo masterpiece for $100 and sold it for $120 million. So here's the point. Jeremiah was planning for a future that was going to outlive him. You realize Jeremiah never, well, 
to our knowledge, never set foot in that property. Tried to, but he was taken to Egypt, probably never saw that property, probably never planted anything on that property. You know what? He wasn't just planning for his future in this earth. He was planning for his future in another place. I'll tell you something, folks. Every time you show your faith to God, every time you send a donation ahead to eternity, when you give to a church or a religious organization, every time you obey the Lord, every time you honor Him by trusting Him, no matter what He tells you to do, that obedience, that faith is put forward to a life and to an investment that will never go away. That will never be challenged by a stock market crash. That will never be adjusted by a presidential election. That will never be destroyed by a siege from another country. That will never be wiped out from a pandemic. See, when we express faith in a God who owns and rules everything and we push that faith forward to an eternal life and an eternal experience, it will last well beyond the life we're going to live here on planet Earth. So why should we put our faith in Jesus? Why should we show our faith? Because when we do, it is a guaranteed investment. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found. 